Have you ever gone rappelling? Um, you, you go rock climbing and you enter into this series called rappelling. If you've ever done that on a wall or on a rock, there's this enormous challenge of trust. So you stand up at the top of some wall or on a rock and your belayer is down at the bottom and you have this rope and you have to lean back and you have to trust the rope. That's all it is. You have to trust the rope and you have to lean back. Because if you're, if you're at the top of this rock and, and this is you, and you go back this far and you start jumping down, what's gonna happen is you're gonna jump and you're gonna do a face plant right into the rock. It's not very pretty. You can't jump at this kind of angle, it'll suck you back in. You have to lean all the way back until you're perpendicular to the rock and then jump so it pulls your feet into the rock. Uh, you're leaned that far back. That is not me, by the way. Um, <laughs> I should have, that's me. That's, uh, that's, uh, I was out last weekend, I took this picture, it was a selfie. Um, <laughs> it's not me. But it's this enormous trick. Now, the, the thing about trust is it's hard. Now, if you don't trust the rope, it does not go well for you. The only way down with joy and with pleasure and with health, the only way down is to trust the rope. Now, if you don't trust the rope, it remains the rope. The rope's trustworthiness is not challenged by whether we trust it or not. The rope remains the rope. It is the only way down safely, pleasurably, pleasurably and with joy. It remains that no matter what you and I do. I bring this up because we're walking into this new series, Thrones. It's talking about a king on a throne. We're gonna look at at Samuel, we're gonna look at David, we're gonna walk through uh, first into second Samuel, and we're gonna consider who is on the throne. And I, I will just paint this picture now at the very beginning. The only way down, safely, pleasurably, and with joy, the only way down is if King Jesus is on the throne. It's the only way down. Now if you or I do not trust him as king, he remains king. He's sovereign over everything, whether we trust him or not. But the only way down, safely, pleasurably, and with joy, is to trust in God, to trust in Jesus as king. This is what Israel failed to do when it asked for an earthly king. So we're gonna, we're gonna walk through what it is when who who sits on the throne? What if that person's evil? What if that person does something wrong? What if that person is good? We're gonna walk through all of these challenges, but all the way through the whole series, have in the back of your mind, the only way safely down, pleasurably down, with joy down, is to have King I always think in a church, like we catch on faster than we do. The only way down safely pleasurably and with joy is with King Jesus. Jesus on the throne that has to rest in the back of your mind. Now before we jump into 1 Samuel, where we're going is 1 Samuel 8 this morning, what I want to do is, is back up and paint a little bit of the history of how we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's actually a fairly short story. From the beginning, God had a plan to have a relationship with a people called Israel. He chose a nation called Israel. 
We read this in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, seven, eight, we're gonna read, but in verse six it says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, God chose Israel. Not, not just chose Israel, chose Israel to be a treasured possession. We'll read there to be his son, there to be his wife, there to be his lover. He chooses Israel to have a special relationship with. Now, this, this choosing of Israel is an, an unconditional thing. It's not, it's not based on any reasoning that can be figured out on earth. Verse seven and eight continue. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love Israel? Because. Because. God loves Israel because God loves Israel. That's the grand theology of this verse. I'll recognize, anybody here as a kid really despise the reason because? Can I go out and run? No, why? Because. Like you, we, we knew intrinsically, because, because is this worthless answer that means you have no real reason. No real logical reason, just because. But that's true of why God loves Israel. It's true of why God loves you or me. God chose us because. It's not because we're stronger, it's not because we're faster, it's not because we're more numerous, it's not because we're more faithful, it's not because we would be more obedient. It wasn't, wasn't because of anything on our part. God loves you and I because, because, because. So God, God formed this relationship with Israel, and it was an intimate one. The language shifts throughout Scripture. Hosea chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. It's the first time Israel was born as a nation, was when they came out of of Egypt. Before that time, God had relationships with some individual people. He had relationships with Adam, and he had a relationship with Noah. Essentially, then he had a relationship with, with Abraham, if you just look at it in quick fashion. And with Abraham, the promise came that I'm going to love you, and I'm going to give birth to a nation. And that nation was born when he called them out of Egypt, and he says, you are my son. Just this last Thursday, Deborah and I were out on a date, and uh, we were walking down University Avenue towards campus, that's where our date was, and we saw some people we knew, and uh, they, they were sitting out on a patio at a restaurant, and we walked over there to say hello, and we were talking briefly, and they said, hey, how, how are your grandkids? I said, well, good thing you asked. I pulled out my phone. I had just refreshed my cover pages and, uh, with photos from that day. So I said, oh, here, here's my granddaughter, and I showed a couple pictures of her, and then there's my grandson, showed a couple pictures of him. This is God saying, that, that boy, that son, 
He's my kid. He's Israel. God forms this relationship with Israel. Now, the first human being the promise really goes to is Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, we read these words. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, so here we learn this, this choosing of Israel is you're going to be a nation. You're going to be a people. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my wife. You're going to be my people. In fact, it's going to be a grand experiment on the face of planet Earth. You're not going to have a king. I'm going to be your king. You're going to be the sheep of my pasture. I'm going to be your shepherd. I'll be your king. And I'm going to make you a nation. And as a nation, I'm going to give you land. And that land, it's going to go all the way from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates River. I'm giving you all of that land for my nation, my son, my wife. The promise is repeated to Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 11. He's coming out of Egypt. He says, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates to the Western Sea. Saying, Moses, now the nation is born. And as you come into the promised land, every piece of ground that you put your foot on, I've given it to you. I've given it to you. Your enemies are going to run away. Just take possession. I am giving it to your hand. And, and you read through the early history. God did miracle after miracle after miracle of simply giving them. If God is fighting your war, you don't have to do much but trust. You have to trust. You have to trust. But if you trust him, walls tumble down and people run away. And every piece of ground, Moses, I am going to give it to you. And that piece of ground is going to go all the way from the mountains of Lebanon to the desert down by the sea. It's going to go all the way from the Euphrates to the Great Sea, or, or including the desert, to use the language from Abraham, all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates. This promise is repeated over and over and over. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1, we read essentially the same promise. So they come out. Moses passes away, and Joshua is leading them into the promised land. And it says this, Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." Joshua, go into this promised land. I have given you every square inch of it. Every place your foot treads, I have given it to you. You trust me, and I will deliver it into your hands. Trust me, be strong and courageous, and trust me, and go. Now, the promise is for the land. All the way from Lebanon, all the way to the desert, from the Euphrates, all the way to the Nile. A trick of really walking through this piece of history is it's good to be aware throughout all time, from the date of those promises to today, Israel has never once, not for a single day, possessed that land. Not once. At the peak 
of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon, when their land expanse was at the absolute greatest portion, they didn't possess even 15% of the promised land. They didn't possess it. It was not theirs. Take a look at this map. So this, this is a map with modern Israel essentially outlined. Um, now at various times in Israel's history, Israel was maybe slightly larger than that, but never really much. If you go to the, to the west, that was always Egypt. If you go to the north, that was always Lebanon. If you go to the, if you go to the east, uh, Israel never possessed Jordan really. Uh, a little bit into it, but never really. Now I want to put on here uh, a map of what the promised land really is. Go to the next map. This is the fullness of the promised land. So on the, on the far eastern side in Iraq, if you go all the way essentially from Kuwait up, you follow the river Euphrates. You follow the river Euphrates over, and then you, you go all the way past Israel to the Nile River, which comes down the heartbeat of Egypt. That is the landmass that was promised. Israel never once possessed more than maybe 15% at the absolute max of that landmass. Now, we see that in Scripture. It is, it is shown to us. In fact, if we go in uh, the book of Joshua, we read this in chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. In other words, in the time of Joshua, they, they couldn't get those people out of the city. In chapter 17, we read this in verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. Over and over and over, Israel was not able to take possession of the land. Then we turn into the the book of Judges, and it says this just in chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first against, or for us against the Canaanites to fight against them, which is code for God. We don't have the land yet. Joshua is passing away, so who's going to lead us? We don't have the land. And all through the book of Judges, over and over and over, is a cycle of not possessing the land. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. And there's a list of cities, of Betshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, inhabitants of Megiddo, that's like Har Megiddo or Armageddon, Megiddo, and the villages, and the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the... They didn't put anybody out of any of the cities. All of these cities, they did not capture, they did not possess the land. And it's not just Manasseh or a couple of tribes. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kishon. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beersheba. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country and did not allow them to come down into the plain. So Israel never possessed the land. Then a great judge rises up. His name's Samuel. He's the first one who hears from God. That's his name, heard from God. His birth is miraculous. Miraculous. 
and you begin to trust not in God, but you begin to trust in Samuel. Because Samuel was a man somehow connected to God. He was a great man. And for the first time since Moses or maybe Joshua, Israel sits back and says, I, I don't know about following God, but I can follow this man. Then that man grows old. That takes us to our passage today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So we'll begin in the passage. We're just going to read uh, seven verses in total. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So here's here's the scene. Samuel is this great man, and Israel has now come to trust in him. But he's old. He's nearing death. The question is, who who are we going to trust in after Samuel goes away? What's going to happen now? God, we've never never walked in your promise. We've never possessed the land. We've been on this journey of failure after failure after failure. What's going on? And as Samuel grows old, he he puts his two boys in charge. Verse two and three. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. These are, these are great names. So, so Joel is uh, Yael or Yahweh-el. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And Abijah is, is the, the Jah or Yah at the end is Yahweh is my father. So Yahweh is the Lord and Yahweh is my dad. Yahweh is king, you could say, and yet he is still intimate with me. These are the names of his sons. So the name of his firstborn son was Yahweh is is God. The name of his second, Yahweh is my dad. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. His sons became congressmen. Special interest was going to rule the roost. And the country stepped back. Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't trust in God, but we don't trust in these two guys either. Samuel, Samuel, something's got to shift. Something's got to change. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, this is 4 and 5, Behold, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We want a king. We want a king. Now I can can understand that the thing inside our flesh that propels us towards leaders that we can see and control and have accountable, something we can see and touch. When my daughter was really young, I remember going in to comfort her. She was scared. Daddy, daddy, daddy. I ran into the bedroom, ran up next to her bed, sat down. Oh, it's okay. It's okay, honey. It's okay, honey. Daddy's right here. I remember holding her hand, 
comforting her, letting her know that God was there, right there with her. God was in the room with her. God was protecting her. She was a child of God. She could trust in him. I remember praying with her and praying for the comfort of God to quiet her heart and her mind. And after we were done praying, I squeezed her hand, gave her a hug, and started to walk out the door. Daddy? Yeah, yeah, honey. So I, I know that God's here, but I want someone with skin on. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, let's trust in God. The reality is my bills are real. My enemies are real. The hurdles in front of me, the trials and temptations and suffering, they're all very real. I feel them. I see them. I smell them. And Israel says, enough of the grand experiment. I don't want something or someone who is invisible to be my king, I want someone I can touch and hold accountable and at some measure control. I want a king. Samuel, I want a king. My problems are real. They're visible. I can touch them. I want a king who is real, that I can see and that I can touch. And so Israel Israel calls, calls for a king, and the dilemma begins. The immediate reaction of Samuel is one of sorrow. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel hears them request a king, as if the grand experiment is over all the way back to the promise of Abraham, a nation in which God would be king and the nation would be his people. That's all thrown out. They want an earthly king. Samuel is sad and he, he begins to talk to the Lord. And verse seven, and, and, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Samuel, they're asking for a king. Go ahead and give them one. Side note here. Be leery of ever asking God and demanding for things and then he giving them to you. Romans chapter 1, we read this verse in which he hands them over to their own desires. Give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me from being king. They're rejecting me from being king. Now, there are two, two grand ways that you can reject God. The first is the, the more basic, the, the more upfront that we can consider. Someone who, who simply rejects God outright, knowingly, vocally, deliberately, says, I don't want God in my life. I want to do the things I want to do when I want to do it. I want to lead my own life. 
I don't want God in my life. And so there's a complete rejection of God, a complete rejection of Jesus Christ. Someone wants to walk their own way. That's one way to reject God. The other, the other has a little nuance to it in which people like you and me come and say, I, I want God in my life. Jesus, I want you in my life but I don't want you on the throne. Not, not in these areas. I want you in my life for comfort and for mercy. I want you in my life for forgiveness and healing. I want you in my life to make my relationships better. I just don't want you on the throne giving orders. Sometimes we exalt politicians to the throne. Just like Israel, we, we say we, we want leaders. That's where we're gonna put our hope. We put our hope in a party. We put our hope in a convention. We put our hope in a president. We exalt them. Or we put our hope in a, in, in a pastor. How, how many times is a pastor somehow exalted up way beyond what a pastor is. I don't mind saying, so hopefully in a sense that the vote part of this whole thing is over. Please know that it, one of the things of the heartbeat of co-leadership is the, is the idea that this is not a church about Greg Levine. This is a, a church about Jesus Christ, amen? amen? We want to do everything we can to make sure it's not about a human leader. It's one of the little side benefits of co-leadership. It, it naturally takes away from a single human being being a, a, a focal point. In the midst of this process, I've had numerous people encourage me. Pastor, I'm nervous about co-leadership because this church is about you. This is your work. You've been here 20 years. And I don't mind saying that when I hear that, I. I can receive a measure of encouragement. I like encouragement. But I also have a very strange distaste inside of me that this church would ever be anything about me. Because if it is, you should interview my mom and my wife and my kids. They would tell you. Hopefully they would say something like, Greg's a great dad, he's a great husband, he's a great son. But he's not Jesus. He's not. He's not Jesus. I think that would come out pretty clear. We constantly latch on and we exalt earthly leaders to a pedestal that they should never be on. And then we place our hope in them and we place our disappointment in them as if they are the leaders of us. We place political leaders there. We place religious leaders there. Sometimes we put our 401k there. Sometimes we put our insurance there. Like, like what are we going to trust? Because there's only one way safely down. There's only one way to get down pleasurably and with joy, and that is with King Jesus, Jesus on the throne. You don't get safely down by having a big 401k and making it king. 
You don't get safely down by having the right president or the right congressman or the right pastor. You don't get safely down by anything but King Jesus being on the throne. King Jesus being on the throne. The question comes back to us. Who is on our throne? The throne of our life, the throne of our heart. Who is on our throne? Our family, our spouse, our work, our money. Who is on our throne? Jesus, when he came, from the very beginning, was hailed as King Jesus. They knew in the prophecies he would be King Jesus. He knew when he, when he took sovereignty over demons, that was King Jesus. When he took sovereignty over nature, that was King Jesus. When he took sovereignty over sickness and even over death, that was King Jesus. When he took sovereignty over sin and said, your sins are forgiven, that was Jesus. Come on, that's the most exciting one. I mean, it's cool. It's cool that Jesus calmed the sea. It's cool that Jesus raised people from the dead. It's cool that Jesus looked at demons and said, out, and they went into a swarm of pigs and drowned in the sea. But it is a whole new measure of cool for him to say, your sins are forgiven. That can only be king. Jesus. King Jesus. He is king. He is king. And from beginning of the Gospels to the end of Scripture, including the prophecy of the Old Testament, he is king. King of kings and Lord of lords. He is king. He is king. But we... Human beings constantly miss out on him by placing a focus on a different kingdom. Why is it that the religious leaders of Jesus' own day rejected him? Because he was not the type of king that they wanted. Jesus is exalted as king all through scripture. In John chapter 18, he's nearing his death. He's tried as king, actually, with the Sanhedrin all night long. They're spitting on him, mocking him, and hitting him. In the morning, he goes to Pilate. He goes from Pilate to Herod and then back to Pilate. He's having a conversation with Pilate. And Pilate says, Jesus, are you king? The sign on the cross that they want you to carry. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Are you king? And Jesus' response, John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. My kingdom is not something that you can necessarily see and touch and smell. 
Not with, not with fleshly eyes and fleshly noses and fleshly hands. My kingdom is not of this world. And so it propels us way back to 1 Samuel 8. When Israel said, we no longer want a king who's not of this world. We want someone that we can hold accountable, we can see and we can touch and we can feel. The question then comes to us, who is on the throne? We lift up political leaders, we lift up religious leaders, we lift up 401Ks, we lift up families, or perhaps the most heinous thing of all. If we're really honest, we're most comfortable if we're sitting on the throne ourselves. We can't walk through these passages without being humbled and asking the question at the onset, Jesus, are you on the throne of my life, the throne of my heart, the throne of my thoughts, the throne of my strength, the throne of my desires. And so today is a good day to surrender. Say, Jesus, afresh and anew. If you're a Christian, afresh and anew. I want you to be king. Show me all the ways I'm not trusting in you because I want you to be king. And if you're not a Christian yet, if you've been dancing around the top of the mountain, looking at that rope, thinking, you sure you got it? This is me. I do not lean back easy. In fact, the only times I've been repelling, it's normally after the first face plant that I start to lean back a little more. Maybe that's you. And Jesus is saying, I want you to trust me. My kingdom's not of this world, but you can pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And my kingdom, which is not of this world, will flood all around you, called the kingdom of God. So if you're not a Christian, um, I would invite you today. In fact, I, let, let's do this. I, I don't do this very often. I, I do wanna just kinda bow our heads for a moment. Just to give a measure of privacy for someone if they've been in that place. If you, if you're dancing around at the top of the mountain, today is a day Jesus is calling you to trust in him, and you're ready. You're ready to raise your hand and say, Jesus, I not only want your forgiveness and your mercy, I want you to be king. Would you just raise your hand? Jesus, come and be the king of my life. Amen. 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 Lord, for every hand that just raised, I rejoice and I pray that you would pour out your spirit on this place and wake up our souls for the joy that it is to have you as king. I pray for every Christian here who has already taken that step 
to be refreshed in the goodness that you are the Lamb of God and that you reign forever and ever and ever. Help us walk in your reign, walk in your kingship in this day. In the holy name of Jesus Christ we pray. Everybody said, amen. Let's go ahead and stand. We're gonna sing about the reign of Jesus Christ.